0: Thank you. My specialty, what I have spent most of my life working on, has been civil-military relations. And one of the problems that I have com- confronted is there's far too much emphasis on control. Um, the problem is not to control the military, the problem is to create a symbiotic relationship between political decision-makers and military, senior military officers. Now, let me make full disclosure. I spent 33 years in uniform, both active and reserve, starting out as a seaman recruit and ending up as a Navy captain. My son-in-law is in the process of returning from a combat tour in Afghanistan. My older son graduated from the Naval Academy. My daughter was an Army jag. I was assigned to the Pentagon twice as an FSO Foreign service officer, once in a staff of the CNO, once in a staff of OSD, and the state Department I ran an office in political and military affairs. My point in making it is simply that I think I know something about how the military works, not just from academic study, but from having lived with them, and Ben walks the away it work. I have written 10 books and over 12 books and over 100 articles on U.S., Russian, Polish, and German militaries. Um, and the fact that I learned one, one of my colleagues has actually read one of my books. Based upon the academic research I did, trying to find something that made sense, I used a model uh, proposed by Alex George and Eric Stein most useful. What it focuses on is presidential leadership style, and that's the thing you look at to try and make make sense out of things. I used it for two books on U.S. Civil-Military Relations and one on Russian Civil-Military Relations. Now, Bush. I see Bush's leadership style from the standpoint of the military. It's absolutely critical. Bush is the first CEO we've had as a president. His model, he is the president. Cheney is the CEO. Rumsfeld, at that time when we started out, is sec he's the department head. He also combines that sort of a model with a strong sense of loyalty. What does it mean? It means that Bush is dependent on who he appoints to sec death. He does not interfere in how the v- operations is done. If he p- appoints a good person, he wins. If he appoints a, a, a bad person, he loses. The um, the problem. Oh, excuse me. Uh, how do you determine if a person doing a good job? Now, here's where the real crunch comes. It's very difficult to take people out of the business world and put them into government. Whether it's the State Department where I spent more than 20 years, or it's in the Pentagon, why? In the commercial world, how do you decide if something is good or bad? It's the Bottom line, you look for numbers. You'll see if you are you making money, or are you losing money? If you're losing money, you're in trouble. The military world is very different, it has a different, completely different culture than the business world. The whole, this is the way I could go through the whole thing, but I'm not going to waste time on that. You can't focus on uh, military, um, you cannot walk into the Pentagon and try and impose business culture on the military world without running into very serious problems. You can't count things unless you want to do a body count. The military doesn't have a thing you can count. It's especially different when you're dealing with something with counterinsurgency. Are you winning or are you losing? It's very hard to tell if you want, what you want to do is re- reduce everything to numbers. The problem that we have in in, in the military is it's very difficult if you bring a SecDef in who's coming from the security, from the business world, from uh, managing serial corporation, and put that person into the uh, military world, and then he tries to reorganize things from where he came from. Conflict, let me make it clear, is inevitable in the relationship between people in uniform and civilians, resources, whether you use force or don't use force. I'm not suggesting the conflict is bad. In fact, this system is set up all over the place to to encourage conflict. It is an integral part of the American political system. And the military accepts civilian leadership, expects it, and wants it. The problem is that when you violate military uh, 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 culture, and you can do that and if you're the senior civilian, he will acerbate conflict. The single point is that in terms of Rumsfeld, is he ignored military culture. Indeed, he had disdain for the majority of the military and had a very antagonistic relationship with him. Gates, who we'll come to later on, respects military culture and has a military working with him. It is reminiscent of something the late political scientist Richard Neustadt said, presidential power is a power of persuasion. You can order somebody in uniform to do whatever you want them to do and they'll do it. There is a difference if they do it thinking that they're part of the team, thinking that it's part of something that they uh, want to do, that it makes sense to do it, or if you're just simply ordering them to do it simply because, and if you don't have respect for them. The the bottom line of all the things that I have found studying both the Russian, American, uh, German and Polish militaries, the key point is, do you respect them? If you respect them, what that means is you listen to what they have to say, and once you hear what they say, you make a decision. It may go their way; it may not go their way, but that's absolutely critical. Give me some examples. of Rumsfeld. He he basically ran the place as his own fiefdom. He pointed a man called Douglas Fife, and I would not. I can't use the comments that that uh, Tommy Frank said. He's a blank, uh, stupidest guy on the face of the earth. Um, and if you go through what Fife did, if you read all 535 pages of his book, if you can get through that, um, you'll find out very quickly that, you know, God forbid, what we had, what we, what he was doing. And in fact, I think the best comment I've found on the Rumsfeld administration and Fife came from a Russian general, Alexander Levit. Some of you remember him. If a lion stands at the head of an army of lions, victory is assured. If a lion stands at the head of an army of asses, the chances are 50-50. But if an ass stands at the head of, the arm, of an army of lions, you can call it quits. <laughs> Here's some examples of what I mean. The 1986 uh, 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 law that was passed by Congress um, basically said that the gold, it's gold or nickels I'm thinking of, I'm sorry, is that the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs is the President and the Secretary of Defense's senior military advisor. Rumsfeld went to uh, to Hugh Sheldon, who was uh, Chief uh, Chairman at that point, and he said, I don't want you talking to the President unless you first clear everything with me. And Sheldon said, lots of luck, it's not gonna happen. I've got the 1986 uh, Goldwater-Nichols Act, and that's exactly what I will do. If I have something to say to the President, I will say it to the President. He waited him out. And what happened? He put in Dick Myers, who graduated in Kansas State, and Dick Myers was, a much, was appointed for two reasons. He was high tech, which is what Rumso liked, and also because it was very clear he was not going to stand up to the chairman, uh, to the, to the uh, Secretary of Defense. Then, too, General Shinseki. I must say that the book I wrote, I dedicated to Shinseki. I have never met met the man. He humiliated him for telling Congress what he thought. When when Senator Levin said to him, how many troops do you think we'll need in Iraq? He said several hundred thousand. The next day, Wolfowitz came out and said that's widely off the mark, and then Rumsfeld leaked the the information that uh, "Well, who who his successor was gonna be, 14 months before he finished, trying to force him to leave the military. Shinseki didn't, and I would just say as a footnote, I think that Obama's decision to appoint Shinseki, as head of the Veterans Affairs, was a marvelous I did a newspaper article every week and I saw it at a home run. Why? Because one thing you know, for people who are, in, uh, that, who are veterans, Shinseki will not, will not refuse to tell you. He'll tell Obama what he thinks. He's not going to go along with the team just because he's part of it. And I think it also did a great job of, of, of uh, putting him back in the public eye. And the bottom line is, Shinseki was right. He was right right on this thing, in fact, John Abizade, General Abizade later called, said, later made that point. Tommy Franks, I'm not all that impressed with what Tommy Franks acted, but what Rumsfeld did is he constantly beat him down on numbers. When I asked General Zinni, who was uh, previous CENTCOM, how many troops did you need, he said, my minimum number was 3,85,000. And that's the first number Franks did. Franks was then beaten down by Rumsfeld consistently, telling him, no, 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 so we got down to 140,000. Uh, troops. I'm frankly not impressed with Franks because I think he should have put his, line, his his sword on the line and say, look mr secretary, this is dangerous. Uh, front of the whole point was what do you, the military just uh, operates in four phases or at least he did preparation, carrying starting the battle, carrying it through and then post combat operations. nothing was done post-combat operations because Fife told people we got it all taken care of. Nothing was done and we got there, and that's why you had the whole mess of people walking around Baghdad with, with not knowing what in the hell to do. Then I would also point out uh, transformation theory. The sad part was when Rumsfeld came in, uh, Shinseki was already working on it. Shinseki knew the army was having problems and then had to get into the become more flexible, lighter move. and he had already been working on it. And so what did Rumsfeld do? Rumsfeld refused to talk to Shinseki for uh, almost six months. And in the meantime, he put his own in, which were the, and the way he was gonna finance it, he was going to get rid of two army divisions at a time when both White and Suseki were telling Congress they needed two more divisions just to carry out the tasks that they had with them. So the whole thing turned into a constant war. And finally, Colin Powell, who I think personally is one of the most important political military figures in the last 20 years, they worked very hard because for this time, for the first time in the administration since I've been following or civil military relations, the vice president became an actor. And so, what happened constantly was Rumsfeld sided with Cheney uh, in order to make sure that, that uh, uh, Powell was, was, was pushed to the side and basically became politically uh, neutered. Now, Gates. When Gates took over, he made it immediately clear that he wanted a strong chairman. And with Mike Mullen, he's got a strong chairman. And he's made it also clear that, unlike with Dick Myers, he wanted Uh, uh, Mullen to say what he thought, and they've gone before the president, and Gates has given his view, and Mullen has given his view, which is different. And that has had a tremendous effect throughout the military. Uh, For example, the whole thing with the Army, the Army's been in a real uh, chaos. I remember telling General Caldwell, I said, look, my son-in-law went out and was trained. First of all, he was trained by uh, non-Special Forces people. He was going out to Afghanistan to train police. Second of all, almost all of them are National Guard, and third of all, the efforts by John Nagel to try and get a patch that they would wear as advisor was turned down by the big army because that's not what we do. That's changed, uh, the, 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 for, uh, the training in the future will all be done down in Louisiana, will be done by special forces for people going to Afghanistan who are in that kind of a, a capacity. He's also now uh, worked with the military to have the, the army has two tasks, they have frontal combat and it's counterinsurgency. The old, well, most of the older ones wanted only frontal combat when we were still fighting the Soviet Union. Conclusion, every president has a different leadership style. People complained about meeting with Clinton, the military complained about meeting with Clinton. It was a seminar. You walked out with no idea what in the hell was he supposed to do, what he had decided, they all talked talk in, in, in broad terms. They loved Bush one. Bush one. you came in and talk to him, he said, hey, we're gonna do A, B, and C, you want, okay fine, now I know what my orders are, they're clear, they're concise, and I can go ahead and do them. And in fact, I would point out, they screwed up things too on their own, the military did, uh, you often look only grenade it with the famous, you know, calling, calling the, can't talk to a ship a mile away, so you call the Pentagon with your uh, visa card, Pentagon hooks you up to the ship in order to talk to them. And the thing we all know what happened in Tehran, the military screwed that up, so I must just admit they can't. If my research shows anything, and it showed that also, in the case of the Russian military, that if a president wants to have a good relationship with the military, he needs to show right up front that he respects them. It is critical that with SecDef who is appointed is an individual who does not try to bring an alien culture into the Pentagon, but Bed Brother works with the culture that is in there, and you can get things done. Uh, but you, you also have to remember, after you're gone, they're still going to be there. So they can, and that's what happened with the Army when Mick fell left. They then introduced a new army manual with uh, showing uh, counterinsurgency. The civilians should be and must be in charge, but is it is critical that the president and the sec dev understand the nature of the military relationship, military culture, if they hope to maximize the positive aspects of the relationship?